On this fresh episode of the Council Connection, I have Diane Reese, the first African-American National School Council Year finalist on to talk about a variety of things. And I had to shut the show down because she went to Savannah State. Of course, we're going to have my housekeeper items and we're going to have a final thought on the death of a colleague and how staffs can get through this. This is the part of the show I say, let's go. Welcome back to the Council's Connection. I am your host, Damian Vixen. We have a wonderful guest with us this evening. We have the first African-American to be nominated for School Council Year as a finalist, Diane Reese. Ms. Reese, how are you doing this evening? I am doing well, and thank you for having me. I appreciate you coming on because um, I'm, I'm, I know this is my fifth year as a counselor. I always strive to learn and know more than what I knew the day before. and Having you on is, is, uh, is enough for me to just sit back and just enjoy the conversation. <laughs> Thank you. And, and for those out there who might not actually know who you are, why don't you give, um, give a little background to who you are, your why, the counseling, and what you're doing now, that type of stuff. Okay, I will. I um, am Diane Reese, and I am from the South. I'm from Georgia, actually. Uh, Born what part? In, well, hold on, what, hold on. What part of Georgia are you from? Georgia? I'm from a little small town called Meta, Georgia. Meta, Georgia. How far is that from Cairo? That from Cairo, I'm not sure. From Savannah, I can tell you it's about 51 miles. Okay. Like it's going in, and, and and since I'm not a real good real good directional person, I would say going in the direction of Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Before they did uh, Interstate 16, you would have to come that little town. And of course, the police would catch you mm-hmm. and to, to get through that little country place. And uh, I grew up at a time, I was born, and I'm not afraid to tell my age because I'm, I'm living. Uh, if I can tell it, that means I'm still living. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was born in 59. So I came at a time when you're, you're talking about getting into the civil rights movement. There were things that were happening. And... Um, while there, of course, is if you know anything about the history of Georgia, um, they were a holdout state when, you know, it came to integration. And so I can remember as a middle school person that they, in Canla County, where I lived, uh, they really did not want to integrate the schools. But the federal government had pretty much told Georgia, you will integrate the schools and, you know, this is, you know, however you do it, that's what you do. And so in Candle County, they had decided that they were not going to take all the black children all at one time. And so how they did that was they took uh, what they call the top 5% in the, at each grade level. Now, I don't know if that was a blessing or a curse for me, but I was one of those kids who went. So I went with my classmates at the time in who was a total of about six of us who went. And that was an interesting, um, that, that was an interesting time. I, I, I don't know how Ruby Bridges felt or any of the other, you know, people they talk about in history that were the first in terms of integrating. But I can tell you that for me, it was, um, it was a scary time. It was, um, it was one of those moments that, has been with me for some time. And so, of course, I wanted to be a doctor and that was my thing because I've watched family members become ill and, and, and around and met or not get the kind of medical care until a cousin um, had an accident and I saw blood and I almost fainted and I said, okay, reverse, we gotta do a new profession. And so then I thought about law. And so I went to Savannah State. It was Savannah State College at the time. Hold on, um, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Savannah State, oh no, oh no. Yes, oh, I no. did. Oh no. Yes. Floor hammers. Okay, okay, okay. We're going to stop the podcast right now. We're going to stop it. Right. Is that right? 
I went to Fort Valley. I got my undergrad at Fort Valley. Did you? Yeah. Yes, yeah. I went to Savannah State. Graduated in nineteen early, actually in seventy nine, but but marched in eighty one. Uh, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful experience. Um, it helped set the trajectory of my social justice and advocacy, and it, and trained me to be that social activist. And it was probably uh, my most memorable experience when you talk about higher education. And so I did not become a, a, a lawyer. I studied in criminal justice, wanted to be, uh, become a lawyer, and actually came to Virginia to live with my brother and sister-in-law to go to law school. And of course, I met my husband, who was in the Marine Corps, got married, and did not go to law school. Um, and so in working and doing the work that I did and working in the juvenile justice system, I had come to the conclusion that I could do this differently. As a matter of fact, um, and I worked in Alexandria Juvenile Court and my caseload was 12 African-American males. And I was what they call the intensive probation counselor at the time. And I saw these young black boys kind of rotating in and I was the last stop on the way to them being committed. If I could not work with them to turn things around, then they were ultimately going to um, the state institution at that point, juvenile state institution. So I worked uh, with, you know, started out with these 12 young men working very hard. And then I, I'm assuming my work must have been great because at that point, the judge and they talked about it that my program could benefit some young African-American females who were coming through. My youngest was 12 years old and who had committed a pretty serious offense. She cut another young lady with the razor in school, cut across her face. And so I had another young lady who was involved in um, selling drugs. So, so I, I was that person, but what sort of just kept nagging at me was that most of the young people that I was working with was also in special education and which grew my love and interest in that area. And so, but I decided that there were too many, especially black males coming through the system. And I thought I need to get them on the front end because there are too many swimming downstream. So if I could yeah, go yeah. upstream and catch them, maybe I could stop that flow. And so i had, I went to visit uh, an alternative school where a friend of mine was the principal and I was sitting there and they had this flyer on the, on the wall from George Washington University that talked about school counseling. And I sat there and I thought, this is what I need to be doing. This is what I need to be doing. And at the time, uh, the timing, I guess, as it was, I had just been diagnosed with lupus and I was recuperating from that. And they had told me that I would never be able to work full time again. And I thought, okay, the devil is a liar. And so I decided to go to school for school counseling. One of the second best decisions that I made in my life, uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. And um, so I ended up, um, you know, doing my internship in Alexandria. I, most of all my, professional life uh, after I married my husband what was spent in Alexandria 20, over 20 something years from working in the juvenile court to working in the youth services and prevention and then going of course into, um, into the school system. And so once I got into middle school, I became a middle school counselor and my caseload was uh, special education and uh, English as a second language students. And I thought, wow, what a way to break into the profession. Two very challenging populations, but uh, most times counselors not spending a lot of time. They taught me so much about being a school counselor. And, and I figured if I worked with these two challenging populations, everything else was a piece of cake. And, um, it was just very rewarding to be able to work with kids who were 
identified as TMR, training mentally retarded, uh, e EMR, learning disabled, emotionally disturbed. I had some of, that was probably some of my better days in, in counseling, or so I thought, until uh, my friend whose school I had visited, alternative school, needed a head school counselor and asked me to transfer to her school. And so I did. And so that was the third best decision of my life, uh, was to work in a school where young people, mainly Hispanic and African-American students, were having uh, challenges with their education. They were the kids that the mainstream said, they're not gonna graduate, they're too far behind. And I said, nope, that's not true. I, you know, I always had big ideas and I had a principal who had been a school counselor and she allowed me to go with all my big ideas for students. And we had a staff that um, was willing to also go with me with my big ideas. And so we worked very collaboratively um, and we had some of the best uh, standardized test scores in our English uh, SOLs than even the mainstream. Even with our small population, we were taking students that could not pass the English 11 SOL, and we were at a 98% pass rate with these students. And so uh, we did just a lot of wonderful work while we were there. And so what occurred to me um, and what, when I look at what's going on now, when we talk about anti-racism and equity, that is probably where, you know, not even, I mean, even at middle school, I had it. But at the alternative school, it was more pervasive when we talk about equity. People just assume that when these students um, came to us that they were really just didn't have the aptitude to do what they needed to do, but they just needed a little support and some guidance and they really needed to believe that they, they were capable and some of them really excelled and did well. And so I got into this thing about how can I transition my students back into the mainstream and get some of them into honors classes, even into AP classes. And that's when um, I had my head on challenges with teachers. And mainly um, a lot of, uh, of the Caucasian teachers. I can remember I sent one of my, uh, changed the schedule of one of my students. We were transitioning her. She had had a 4.0. She had raised her GPA when she came to the alternative school. and. She said, you know, I, I, I want to transition back, but I want to do it slowly because I, you know, I just want to make sure I still have this, you guys supporting me, but I can still make the leap. I said, no problem. We can do that. We can give you a couple of classes in the mainstream and you can still keep your classes here in the, in, in the alternative setting and we'll just transition as, you, as we need to. And so she was going to the science class. She wanted to go in into, uh, in the, into the biology, the science areas. And so I put her into an AP biology class. So she went to the class and a few minutes later, she was back down in our area. And she came in the office and she said, he told me that I was not in the right class. And I said, excuse me, what do you mean? She said, he said, I'm not in the right class. So the, what occurred to me was, well, I can't send her back up there. This means I need to go because this is an adult sized problem. So I said, come with me. So we go back upstairs and I knock on the door and he sees me standing there. And so he's looking and he's still teaching. So I guess when he, uh, it occurred to him, well, she's not gonna leave my door. He comes out to the door and he says, yes. I said, well, I said my student, uh, told me that you said she's in the wrong class. I just wanted to come up and assure you she's not in the wrong class. I said, she uh, should be in this AP class. And he says, um, I don't think so. He said, you know, 
he said, didn't she come from down at the step center? And I, I, I don't know, I could have turned two or three shades darker than what I was. I can't tell, but I do know I was mad and the heat was on my neck. <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, excuse me? And um, so he said, well, you know, they're, they're not ready. I said, this young lady is more ready than probably any of the students in your classroom. Um, she's registered in this class. She's going to stay in this class and she's not going back downstairs with me. I said, now, if you want to talk to my principal and my principal had a huge uh, personality around the school, a great personality, but huge. And people knew as, as her saying, her Southern saying, she didn't take any tea for the fever. And they knew that. And so I invoked her name as I needed and said, I'm sure you don't want to talk to her, Carolyn Lewis. And he looked at me and, and I, under my breath, I said, yeah, I thought so. And um, so my students stayed in the class. So I did go back down and, and, and I told my principal and, and she said, you know, let me know how I can support you. And so it, it was, so for every student that I wanted to transition back, not just in a mainstream class, a regular class, but an upper level class, I would always get pushback and, and would have to fight, you know, somebody to make that happen. And so with that, going through that process, uh, you know, in the alternative school, I just thought, you know, this must be preparing me for some bigger battles that I'm going to have. So I stayed in the alternative school for about, mm, about nine, 10 years. And then I had the wonderful opportunity to become the director at a high school in a school system here in Virginia. <laughs> and and, and I'm, I'm going to be very uh, sort of conservative and not saying, but I can tell you that that was um, one of the most growth experiences that I've had. Now, you would think after growing up in the South, after going through integration, after really, you know, fighting a lot of prejudice and all that kind of stuff growing up in the South, that up here in this area, not so much. But I went into a school that um, had at one point been predominantly white, but had started to become a minority majority school. A lot of our Hispanic uh, students who had immigrated up into this area it was living in, in this particular school district. So it became less white majority, which they did not like. And this particular uh, area, nobody would know this, but it has a lot of racism. And so the racism was not only just among the parents, but it was insidious even in the faculty because that's what they were used to. To give you an example, the makeup in the school, you had a science department that did not have one person of color. You had a math department that did not have one person of color. You had a social studies department that had only one person of color. You had a PE department that did not have one person of color. You had an arts department and music department that did not have one person of color. You had CTE who had maybe two people of color. So where do you think all your teachers of color were? Probably in special ed, probably. There you go. That's exactly where they were. And it, it was just occurred to me, this is crazy. So I encountered uh, three department chairs, all white females. And I had taken over the position of a white director. And I was the first black person to occupy that position as director of school counseling at the school. Well, you know, I'm here I am again, my big ideas, my, you know, all everything that, you know, just coming off from being one of the finalists 2009 because I left, you know, Alexandria City Public Schools in 2010 to go take this position, thinking, okay, 
I, you know, I know the ask a model framework. I can make it work here. Uh, I had a, I had my counseling department consisted of one black male and three white females. And I can tell you, um, for the four years that I was at this school, um, the only way I can describe it to you is it was pure hell. Um, every day was almost like a day of proving myself. Now, that's not to say that I didn't have some support. Um, I did have one of the assistant principals who was not only a good friend, she was my sorority sister and she was a good friend. As a matter of fact, she was the one who brought me to the school, uh, who had convinced the principal at the time who was there, who was a wonderful support to me before he retired, uh, that this is the person you want. She can really take your school counseling program. Uh, when you have school counselors who have, um, you know, racist kind of behaviors or thoughts about people of color, it's, um, that's, that's a hard thing to work with. And then when you have a teaching staff and you have, a, you know, department chairs who have an influence in a school, the work that you do is always under microscope and it's always scrutinized. I can remember I sent out an email to teachers and my emails are just very detailed because I'm always asking myself, if somebody sent me something, what would I want to know? How would I want to know how to do what they are asking me for and all this kind of stuff? So I'm very detailed. So I had one of the English teachers come down to the office and, um, and I just sort of said, okay. She said, I just want to tell you, you are just a very articulate person. Your emails are just really good. She said, I really enjoy reading them. So I said, okay, I could take that one or two ways. And so being the person I am, I said, you know what? I'm going to take it in the other direction because if I take it in this direction, I keep going and I'll probably never know how to come back from it. And so I said, well, thank you so much. I said, you know, I kind of send emails to people that I won't send to myself because I, I always want to be able to understand what people are asking or what they're telling me. She said, well, I really enjoy them. And uh, so I said, okay. So it was always that constant thing, um, you know, and, and I did get a chance to hire, expand my counseling staff from the, the four counselors I had to eight counselors before I, before I left that particular school, but it had its challenges. Um, the, the Hispanic students uh, and, and the black students there, they really depended on someone to champion their cause. And, and so I, I guess as one of my counselors said, you know, you're a rock star with the Hispanic students. I said, well, that's nice. I said, I'd like to be a rock star with all the students, but I'll take that. And that's because they were the minority majority and they knew that the commute, there was uh, people in the community who really wanted their school to be the way that it was before, as they said, before they got there. And so I really tried to make it a place where all students are welcomed, where all students are going to be served. And, you know, it, it had nothing to do with their color and that they would, their needs would be met based on what their needs were. And so th that was a challenge uh, when you have people who feel the way they do about people of color, be it black or brown. And so there were battles there to fight. And so I had the opportunity to leave there and go work at the district level in another school district as the coordinator of school counseling. <laughs> that was quite uh, interesting. Uh, my job was to go, go to each school in this particular district and talk to the school counselors because they were in the middle of really trying to create comprehensive school counseling, develop comprehensive school counseling services, and looking at ramping their schools. So they were uh, really looking, at, looking for me to go in and assess their programs based on, you know, the ramp rubric and to really uh, talk to counselors about how I could support them in that. And so I, would, I was doing that. And in this particular school system where you have the North End and the South End, 
there were vast differences in how the perception of, of students were, and even in terms of resources. And I can remember going in an elementary school, which was in the North End, which was all pretty much predominantly white, which was interesting to me in this particular city that was ethnically diverse. And uh, I can remember going, the counselor had invited me to come sit in on her guidance lesson, her classroom lesson that she was having in her office with a group of kindergartners. And what was interesting, I, I, and I, I love little kids. I think they're fascinating beings. And so I was sitting watching them come in excited and wanting to share whatever they were going to share. And this was, uh, it was in early December. So her lesson was on gratitude and being kind to people. And so she was talking to them about gift giving. And so she had asked this, you know, students, she'd set the lesson up and she said, you know, what if you don't get the kind of gift that you want? She said, how would you respond to that? What? And so she asked, she said, well, what kind of gifts would you not like to get? And so I had noticed that there was this young white female who was sitting at the table. She was looking at the counselor, but she was also looking at me. And I kept smiling because I thought, Maybe she's just fascinated that another adult is in the room. And so she was going around asking the kids, um, what would they not like to get? And so you had a little boy who said, well, I would not want to get anything pink because pink is for girls and so he, so forth and so on. And so one little boy said, well, I wouldn't want to get anything that, you know, had to do with going to school. And these, like I said, were kindergartners. So when she got to this little girl, she looked up at me and she looked at her and she said, I don't want to get anything black. So I just kept sitting there smiling because I said, surely that was not a directed at me. And um, so you would, you, I guess, I, I don't know. I, I thought, well, will the counselor ask her, could you just give me a little bit about what you're talking about? Or at least I thought. But that didn't happen. And so the little girl kept looking at me, even after she said it. And I thought, wow, that was directed at me. And so I went back uh, to the office and I was telling the supervisor of counseling. And, and I, I said, you know, I, I want to just share this with you. I said, I could be way out in left field, but I don't think I am, but I could be. If I am, rein me back in. So I told her about the incident. And she sort of started to laugh and she said, um, Diane Reese, she said, I think you know that was about you. She said, first of all, I want you to take in the context, the school you were in, where you are. And she said, it was most definitely about, about you. And um, she said, how do you feel? I said, I'm not upset. I said, it was interesting though. So she did ask me, she said, so how did the counselor handle it? I said, oh, she kept it moving. She said she didn't inquire. I said, no, she just kept it moving. Um, and, and she was a white female. And so th it, that was quite interesting. So when the supervisor of counseling, uh, when she decided to resign and go to another district, she had recommended, she said, I, you know, Diane Reese will be wonderful for this position. As, and, and, and she was just very transparent. She said, as a matter of fact, she said, I did my internship under Diane Reese. And she said, I'm just, she would be wonderful for this. So I did. I interviewed for her position along with another um, uh, white female. And when they had made their decision, um, our director at the time, when he called me in to tell me I did not get the position, he told me, he, and I said, I said, can I just, what was their deciding factor? Because one of the things is when you talk about, we, we always talk about our credentials and preparing ourselves for those leadership roles and, and to be in those spaces. And I've, I had done all of that and I was at that point. Uh, she did not 
have an advanced degree. She had not had that many years in school counseling at all. She'd never served in a school counseling, you know, leadership role, director, or any of those kind of things. And, and so he said the bottom line was she knew Arlington better than you. She lived there. <laughs> so of course she did. And I said, are you kidding? Is that the only reason? He said that was the main reason that they hired her. So at that point, I said, you know, I got to make a decision. Um, here I am faced again with, um, you know, this color issue and, and I've got to make a decision. So I started to interview and look at some other positions and had an offer from DC Public Schools to be their school manager of counseling. And also interviewed with Trinity Washington University to be an assistant professor of counseling. Well, because I am not the author and finisher of my faith nor my fate, uh, Trinity Washington University won out. And that was fine with me because I saw it as a great opportunity to prepare school counselors in a way that they respected the profession, that they respected the, the students who would come to them, and that they would um, respect the fact that, they, fact that they would have to fight for some students, and they would have to fight hard. Um, and so it has been, with that thought in mind, in terms of preparing school counselor trainees and it couldn't have probably come at a better time when we talk about the space that we find ourselves now, not just dealing with COVID the crisis and those kinds of things, but also dealing with this issue of race. And um, it has been quite interesting to get into anti-racism work in a school counselor education program where the majority of my students are African-American and to talk to them about this whole issue and how they feel about it and how they plan to work to make sure that students of color have equity and access and that they're treated respectfully and fairly in the education process. So that the long way around, but that's Diane Reese. <laughs> Like I said, I, I'm here for the ride and to learn and gain experience from your experiences. I wanted to, to ask you one of the things we talked about, what we're going to talk about this, this evening, uh, your experience now at Trinity. Uh -huh. how, how are you shaping your students to be change agents for anti-racism as far as? I, you know, I really take that ask of model framework and I take the themes of the framework because they understand how the framework can help them organize their work. But I want them to understand how the themes can inform the organization of that work. And as you know, in their new uh, edition, that ASCA has sort of interwoven the themes throughout. And so I take leadership, advocacy, um, collaboration, and look at how do you become a system change agent? How do you integrate social justice throughout everything that you do. And you look at all this stuff from a very, uh, look at you know your advocacy uh, competencies, you look at the multicultural competencies, and we talk about the real things that are happening, even in the District of Columbia, where Trinity Washington University is housed, and where a lot of our students, uh, if, if not at, in, in the district, they have opportunity to do practicum and internship in PG County. And, and now, uh, as all my students seem to think, you know everybody, Dr. Reese. And so we've also, you know, emerged out in Fairfax County and, and in Alexandria and even Arlington, where we have some of our students uh, often intern. And so what I prepare them to do is to go uh, to, to look at the, you know, don't become a part of the fabric of the school, that when you learn all that you do, and even in school council leadership, you don't have to be the director of the program. 
You don't have to be the district director. You just need to have a, a passion and a drive to make sure that students have what they need to learn. And as we know, and, 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 and there's no denying, schools systems have been those systems that have been bedrocks of inequity for children. And so one of the things that I always have them do when they're going into a school is to, you know, look at the landscape. And now that we're in this, on, in this virtual uh, world that we're in, I ask them, when you're with site supervisors, when you're with kids in the virtual screen, what happens to the kids that don't show up? How do they handle that? Because we know there are kids who are on the screen, but what happens to the kids that don't show up? Who go, who goes to get those kids? What, how do they do this? And most of those kids are kids of color, and um, they're they're our black and brown kids. And so I'm always curious, who who goes who goes after those kids when they don't show up? Whether it's a phone call, do you engage that? Do you, do you have a teacher who will not have a student show up on the platform for three or four days and never tell you, and you just sort of discover that by happenstance, like one of my recently uh, graduated students whom uh, I, I hope you get the opportunity to meet, Marcel Brown, he called me last week, and he was talking about how lonely it is. He said, when you're a new counselor, it can be lonely out here because when you're in class, you have you, you have your other peers, you can bounce things. He said, but in this virtual thing, he said, because I can't see my kids and, you know, and, and I, don't, I don't know who's not showing up and there's so many on the screen. He said, how does this work? And so we were talking through that and he was telling me about a young man who has all A's and is failing geometry because he's not going to class. And I said, um, how long has that been? He said, Dr. Reese, I don't even want to tell you. I said, well, did the teacher sort of mention it? He said, no. I said, how did you find out about him? He said, I was just going through looking at schedules and looking at information. And I looked and I saw it and go, wow, this is crazy. He has A's in these classes and he's failing this class. He said, so I decided to reach out to him. So hearing this story from him and interns and practicum students who've gone before students who are now entering into that phase, it informs a lot of what I do in terms of the work that I do in teaching them. I'd certainly share my experiences as a school counselor, as a director, uh, doing a, and, and when I give them case studies, these are not case studies that somebody else wrote. These are case studies out of Diane Reese's book. And I present them because I want them to tell me, how would you handle this? What would you do in your leadership, your advocacy, in your collaboration? If you know that the system is not working for students of color, what, do, what would you do? And so they're very much aware of uh, of where they are and the things that happen with kids and kids that live in areas in the District of Columbia that don't have the same resources that they, you know, the kids in Southeast that don't have the same re resources that kids in the Northwest have, or the Northeast for that matter. And so what do you do to make sure that these kids have a fighting chance at getting the best education that they can get? even in this virtual world, and to look at any anti-racist practices um, that may, you know, preclude them from having that kind of access. And so we do a lot of that. Um, we do a lot of work around adverse childhood experiences and trauma. We give, we work with them in a lot of strategies because, you know, when we started this two or three years ago to integrate that into our curriculum, Little did we know that we would be experiencing COVID-19 or that we would be experiencing racism and that they would need these skills. 
we just thought, okay, this trauma is a big thing. We work in an area where kids experience a lot of trauma in these neighborhoods. And so you need to know this coming out the gate. You don't need to try to learn this on the job. We need to prepare you now. And so we've integrated adverse childhood experiences and trauma and looking at the neuroscience brain uh, development into our curriculum, into every course that we teach. And it has been amazing for our students. And so we have given them the advantage when they get ready to go into uh, practicum and into the internship that they're better able to identify what is happening with kids, that they are asking the question now, not what's wrong, but what happened to you and working at the point of what happened and not what's wrong. And so it's making a huge difference. Um, their commitment you see is just, is just outstanding at the work that they wanna do. Um, you know, they tell you when they come in that I have a passion for this work. Well, Diane Reese's thing is, I hear you talking, but when you leave from here and when you really get into it, I want to make sure that you still have a passion because when you talk about this work, this work is not for the faint of heart um, and it's not for the people who don't have a heart. And so this is a lot of heart work and there'll be students who don't always do what you want them to do, but there's, you still don't kick them to the curb. There, there are gonna be some parents who are gonna challenge you at every turn, but that doesn't mean you give up on the child. And so they're having these experiences and it's interesting as they come and process in class you know, Dr. Reese, she said, and, and it's just amazing to just sit and listen to that um, and to have them process through that work and what we do. And so uh, anti-racism work, teaching them to challenge what they hear, what they see, and to make it better, not just for the students, but even for themselves so that they can do the work that they need to get done. I'm going to give you one final question because that was a whole 20-piece nugget you just gave us right there with the fries and a large drink. <laughs> and I don't want I know this might not, it kind of ties into what we're talking about, but it's one last question before I, before I get you off, okay. off the call. Um, where do you see counseling five to 10, we'll, we'll say short term, five years from now as far as demographics for, for the counselor, what would they need five years from now? Um, especially with the change with COVID-19 and anti-racism and social injustices, where do you see counseling five years from now? I, if, if we have not done a good job in doing, helping to build up the competency and advocacy, um, we need to go back to the drawing board and write. I think advocacy is going to be huge and leadership as we define it may take on a whole different look. And I think that um, we need to really do come to the point of saying, we can't do this work by ourselves. And when I say collaboration, it's not just within the school community. It may mean, it may mean if you have not extended yourself beyond the brick and mortar walls that you were working in, or even now the virtual screen that you're on, then you may be doing your students a great disservice we are going to have to create partnerships far beyond that. And I think as universities, we're gonna to have to do more than just prepare students to be out in the field, but we're going to have to be more deliberate in our partnerships with school districts. Um, one of the things that we tried to do in our counseling department with clinical mental health and school counseling is to do interdisciplinary kind of work uh, we, we are housed under nursing and health professions and before they moved us from the School of Education. And we really try to, you know, get them to integrate this whole ACES work and all of this kind of work because 
I, I don't see any other way that this can happen. When you think about schools, you have school nurses in schools, you have teachers in schools, you have school administrators. And so as universities, if we don't start creating these collaborative and teaching collaboration, what that really looks like in our programs, we will continue to send people out into spaces who work in silos until you know, you're trying to say who does this, who's going to do this and who's doing that, instead of doing a collaborative, collective thing so that we make it better for everybody in the school environment. And I think those are some things that, uh, that we really are going to have to uh, work at hard at, that, you know, in these schools of eds, nursing, wherever we are, we have got to start looking at how do we prepare our students that we have where we are, that when we get out in the field and they come to you and they go to other spaces, that they don't come, you know, where you have to do some other major work, but they're ready to really hit the ground running and that they have some knowledge. And I think the profession will really have to look at, you know, are we really as, we use, kick the word diversity around, but when we look around, are we that really diverse? And do we really honor multiculturalism? Do we really honor when we talk about, you know, uh, letting everybody have access to even, you know, among us professionally? Um, again, when I think about my experiences to get to where I've been, They've not always been pleasant experiences. And then, and I always have this saying to a school counselor who is having her own experiences. She's a director now. And as I was, and she trained under me and we were talking about this. And, and I said, you know, uh, at some point, um, when will we value that, you know, there are people of color who really do know some things and that they have the opportunity to lead counseling programs and also to be tapped for the great expertise and value and worth that they have. And so as school counselors, it's always um, it just bums me out when I think about it. We're supposed to be the people teaching problem solving, but we are probably some of the worst people at problem solving skills when we look at this whole thing about racism, even within our professional lives when we work with each other. And that is a problem for me. That is a problem for me. And so I think that we, we've got to, one, be honest about where we are as a profession um, and, and look at, do we really, when we talk about, we honor, you know, the multiculturalism that's present, do we really honor that? we look around, do we honor that in terms of our associations? Do we honor that in terms of the profession and being in school spaces and all those? Do we really honor that? And I think that, um, you know, probably uh, predominantly white institutions need to ask themselves, are we as diverse as we can be in terms of our student population and putting you know, school counselors diverse with diversity in the field. Um, as I said, my po student population is predominantly black and, and it's growing Hispanic and white school counselors. It's amazing that we have, you know, growing population of, 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 of white graduate students in our program. And we have a large population of Hispanic uh, students that are coming into the profession and through our program. And so when we, when KCREP came to uh, do our study, uh, the, the leader of the team said, he said, I've, I've got to give it to you. He said, I've, I've done this around with a lot of institutions, predominantly white, some predominantly black. And he says, you guys have this diversity of graduate students. You really have it down. He said, you have, you have males, females, a Hispanic, Asian, you know, white, Hispanic, you know, black. He said, he said it's, and, you know, counselors with disabilities. He said, you, you have, 
you have a, a diverse student, graduate student population. And so I think we're going to have to look at that. And especially with in the midst of COVID and in um, with this issue of racism, we are really going to have to think about our work as school counselors and, and, and ask ourselves, are we as prepared as we should be? And are we ready to really, you know, help kids through the crisis, whether it's COVID, are we prepared enough to have the courageous conversations around race with our students and with our colleagues? Ms. Reese, this was a real pleasure to have you on this evening. I appreciate you coming on tonight. I appreciate you asking me to do so. I really do. All right, thank you so much. All right. You take care. Be careful you, out there. You, you do the same. All right. Have a great uh, evening. Uh, you too. We'll be right back with more Council Connection right after this. This is the part of the show where we do our housekeeping items and we have a variety of ways you can catch our show. Of course, you can catch it on Anchor. You can catch it on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Overcast. You can catch it on Google Podcasts. And of course, you can catch it on Apple Podcasts. Apple, if you're listening, I need a new iPad and a um, MacBook Air. If you want to sponsor the show and send me some new items, I would greatly appreciate it because I'm really trying to upgrade my my setup for my podcast um you can also follow me on the twitter at fabe f-a-b-e the p-s-c you can also follow my website fabe thecounselor.weebly.com you can also find me at those locations and reach out to me on our on anchor.fm forward slash fabian dash vix leave a message for us have some questions about anything or you want to leave a comment about the show we'll air it and we'll greatly appreciate that we'll have some more special guests later on this year we are doing a lot of interviews to get different perspectives from counselors and hopefully we get some more administrators on as we keep rolling through our um, podcast endeavor hopefully we'll get the word out and continue to advocate for our position and why counselors are so important in school we bridge the gap between teachers and administrators and teachers and parents and students and teachers and students and administrators that's part of our focus as counselors as you as you all know and i just want to help create a better circumstance for us to recognize what our duties and responsibilities are in the school setting and of course like I said, it is, I love doing the podcast. It just helps me learn a lot. This is only my fifth year as a counselor, and I want to continue to shine a light on what we do as a profession and be the best that I can be. I'll be right back my final thought on, on the deputy. Fabe's final thought. As you all been aware since by March we've been on a pandemic so there have been family members that people have not seen or been in contact with or friends they haven't been able to chop it up with anything like that my circumstance I haven't seen my mom face to face since March the 10th March the 9th March the 10th um, she has type 2 diabetes she had a kidney transplant six years ago and I haven't seen her since then except through FaceTime and talking on the phone or whatever um plus of course you as you listeners already know I lost my dad last year and she's not by herself but my sister's moved in with her to you know keep her company that type of stuff and I applaud her for doing that because that was my plan to plan to do that until um COVID-19 hit in the United States and that just ripped my plans of moving and that type of stuff but when you look at how this affects relationships in the school building and how teachers miss their students and administrators miss their staff as far as being face to face with them in a closed setting um, not taking the chance of anybody getting sick or causing an outbreak or super spreaders um, instance like we had at the White House a couple weeks ago. 
that factors into the relationship building, the relationship growing of staff and administrators. I want to go to one particular staff member uh, at my previous school, Applin Middle School, uh, which is in Bibb County. Um, there was a access teacher named Terrence Holloway. Um, the administrators affectionately call him the deputy. Now, counselors, you thought we do a lot of stuff as far as what we do in the building. He's an access teacher. He's also somebody that helps out with discipline and um, holding students, coaching, helping with afternoon duty, sometimes ice cream duty. Whatever's needed around that building, he was available to do it. There are times where I'm thinking like, why are you out here? Well, they need me to do this. Okay. Dang, coach, what are you doing over here? Hey, man, they need me to do it, dog. And I posted this on my Facebook page, and there's one instance where we, I was, you know, I was a PBS coach from uh, my school, Appler, and we wanted to do like a fall festival for the kids. We did the previous year, it was a big success, and we tweaked it a little bit to make it more manageable. And it was pretty cool, something different, get the kids outside and, you know, grow some social emotional stuff as far as that and, you know, hanging out with peers and friendship making things, that type of stuff. And we actually got a dunking booth. And we, we all, while we were meeting, we were trying to figure out who was going to get in the dunking booth. And Coach Holloway said, yeah, I, I'll do it. So this is like around, around the end of October. So, you know, in Georgia, you know, the weather is bipolar. And you don't know whether it's going to be hot or cold. It wasn't cold, but it wasn't hot either. So it was right in the middle, around 70 degrees, 72, something like that. So Coach Holloway decided to um, go in the Duncan booth, and we set it up for him. And he was a true soldier when he did it. Got in the dunking booth. Those um, seventh graders couldn't really dunk them, really. But it was when sixth grade got up there. Because if you know the Applin set up in the old building because they moved to a new school now, his his classroom was on the same hall as sixth grade. So, you know, he had a lot of interaction with the sixth graders. But his access class was all, across all three grade levels. He had high-functioning um, special ed students. Uh, we had two separate classes. We had um, one that were high-need special ed students. Like, you know, you have your mutism and your... Aut- autistic students and him you might have autistic students but they're high function they can pretty much function on their own but they still need that individualized instruction um, to get through their educational career but the coach Holloway got in a dunking booth and sixth graders tore him up I mean they dunked him about five six times during they, uh, their time outside and just by him being in a dunking booth I think we raised about over a hundred dollars. I can't remember the exact dollar amount because that was like a, a year ago, and I can't remember. But I know I was. I know I was trying to give him that water. I ain't gonna lie. I was trying to give him dunked. I was cutting the kids' deals ten for ten throw for a dollar, five throw for two dollars, something like that. I was just trying to make sure he raised a lot of money, and he was cool with it. I mean, he he enjoyed the kids, and the kids enjoyed him. And no matter how the kids acted and how they were. They loved Coach Holloway because Coach Holloway was real. Coach Holloway was relatable. If you ever talk to the administrative staff because of the things they had him do and how he helped with discipline as far as helping kids and talking about the through issues and handling them, they call him the deputy. And we lost our de- and they lost a deputy. Lost a deputy yesterday morning. Um, talked to one of my friends of mine. He, they both were, um, Holloway was a, a sigma. My friend Kelvin, he's a sigma. My friend Willie was at school now. He's a sigma. One of his closest friends, um, uh, MJ, we call MJ, Moore Jackson. She's a Zeta. They went all went to school. She went to school together with Miss Lewis, who's a counselor there. They all grew up in Tweeds County. Grew up together, went to school. Tight-knit relationship. And He's been sick for the last month, and it just went downhill 
in such a fast fashion that nobody knew knew this was coming to this. We thought we would just he'll conquer this and he'll be back being a deputy at, at Appling. And the fact that they lost somebody that close to the school with that that much building relationships with him is is heartbreaking. And let me let me pull the curtain back just a little bit more and go back a year before, back in December. Um, we had a band director uh, by the name of Emily Miller. She was um, a great director. She came over from the elementary school and she was very talented, albeit she went to Albany State. But she was pretty cool. I mean, she was she was nice as all can be. She was very patient, very t- I mean, very gifted in, in her her um, her style of teaching. And, and music and around Thanksgiving a little bit before that she um, had the flu so thought nothing of it the flu everybody you know you, you eventually get the flu if you you know but we never thought that she would pass away a month a month and a half later right after right when we during Christmas break and that was tough seeing her um, she was Tai Beta Sigma the, you know that's the sorority sisters of um Kappa Kappa Psi Band Fraternity and that was tough for her Southfield family that's the school she came from and the Applin family she just got there and she passed away and the students loved her they adored her and it was just tough for the students and staff to lose somebody that they just got and build a relationship with her and that was in person imagine now with students still being remote and you lose somebody that close that exhibited hashtag Raider Pride. There's, there's so much we want to do right now, but during this time of a, of a pandemic and trying to make sure everybody's safe, how can we as counselors or uh, um, crisis team and Bibb County Frost team in Henry County or administrators help, help those that are grieving? There's that's a that's gonna be a difficult task for the next few weeks and months because it's gonna take time because everybody love Holloway. Holloway will make you laugh, Holloway will make you cry, Holloway will be there. Like I said in my post, he's more than a father, a dad, a teacher, a friend, a mentor, a coach, or a deputy. He he's he exhibited all that when he showed Raider Pride for Appling Middle School. And as a counselor, I'm a young counselor, fifth year. I don't know what to do, and I'm not even there anymore. Because this is tough. Because you see this person every day, and he did so much for that building. What, what can administrators do to, to help ease the pain of of somebody that was so close to them? I don't know. I don't have the answers. But if any administrator or counselor out there that's listening, we as counselors need to come up with a plan of how to how do we help grieving staff members that lose a lose a staff member this early in the school year? How do we support those students? Even though right now we're remote and synchronous and asynchronous learning right now, how we can we support those students that are gonna find out this man passed away? How are we gonna support those families, especially those those um those access classes or self-contained classes, some people might call it, get the resource to those students that don't have a teacher now. What can we do? This is gonna be a this is gonna be a tough time for them right now, and not I'm not I'm not dismissing him his death or anything like that. But I'm looking at the aspect of the support from all levels of of the school building now, the parents, the students, the staff, the classified and certified staff stakeholders, the families, the community, the football players, the coaches, all all of those entities embody some is already going to embody some form of grief. They're gonna go through all the stages of grief of I wish I'd have known this was he was sick this while ago. Why didn't I know this? Why didn't he tell anybody? I wish it could have been me. I can't take this. What can we do as counselors or administrators or staff or mental health professionals or grief counselors or district district personnel what can we do 
to help make this time go by as easy as you can make it be. This is a tough one because he was young. He's in his early 40s. He was a young guy. And then when you look at taking on another, when you peel the onion back just a little bit more, he's an African-American teacher, African-American male teacher teaching special ed students. And you thought black male counselors were unicorns. Not only was he a deputy, he was a unicorn. I want to thank you for listening to my podcast. Be well out there and be safe. I'm out.